This is the Hunt, Fish, and Serve podcast, hosted by Ethan Evans and Tyler Swenson. Today we are joined by a good friend of the podcast, Marco Kami Murda. He is the owner of She Can X Fly, a fly fishing business where he sells flies, guides, and writes articles about fly fishing. Today we are joined by him to hear his journey with fly fishing and how he's transitioned into the guide life. So I guess, Marco, I guess one of the first questions we'll ask you is your kind of background of fly fishing and how you got started. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been fishing since um, I was two years old. Uh, started with a little Mickey Mouse rod, you know, the ones from Walmart where press the button and you let it fly and it gets knotted on the like, you know, hit a bird's nest on the third yep. cast yep. with a little plastic fish. um and so i've had time on the water since i was really little um so my passion started at a very young age um and my grandfather is the one that taught me how to fish um my mom's dad my dad's dad also fished um quite a bit um he's well we're okinawan on my dad's side that's kamimura is uh okinawan name um, and so in Okinawa, it's an island. So our family is actually the oldest little fun fact, the oldest, uh, fish hook in the world known to, uh, Western archeology span today is, uh, 23,000 years old oh, wow. um, on the island of oh. Okinawa. Wow. Um, so our people have been, uh, fishing for a very, very long and, the uh, you know, if you want to call it angling, I mean, it, it does have a hook uh, implemented with it um, for a very long time. Um, and ironically, so on the other side of my family, um, my mom's side, I'm Mexican, um, and particularly from the Baja, what today is known as the Baja Peninsula. And um, I have uh, indigenous ancestry there as well as on the mainland. And so my family has been fishing there for a very, very long time. Um, the oldest fish hook found in the Americas is 11,000 years old. Very, very similar construction to the Okinawan one uh, found on an island off of the coast of Baja, California. Very, very close to where my family is original, their home, uh, their native territory. You can truly say that you got fishing like in your blood. <laughs> yeah, literally. um and so my great-grandfather was actually a he was the first to do it for as a job rather than for sustenance although he also did it for sustenance it was a mix of both but um he uh would take uh so he worked at a worked at three motels um and um so through there he would get his clientele so americans would come down and stay at the motels and then he'd take them out fishing. Um, and so, um, basically like that's when I, I actually knew about guiding, like the concept of guiding and like doing it for money at a very young age. Um, and with that money, so he made 40 pesos on a, in a day guiding, whereas, uh, working at the motels, he'd only make two pesos wow. a week. Oh, geez. Right. So, and that was only enough. One peso was only enough to get one chicken. To and uh, he had ten kids. <laughs> oh my gosh! So um, it 
in a very real way. I mean, that was so he used that money. That's him. And then my great grandmother, she sold, she bred and sold uh, fighting roosters. Um, and so between both of them and the money that they made with their hobbies, essentially with their passions in different ways um, and their skill sets, they were able to send all 10 of their kids to school. At that time, uh, there was no public schooling in Mexico. So it was all private school. So if you wanted an education, you had to go to Catholic school. Um, and so all, yeah, eight women and two men, uh, got an education, which again, in that time, but women getting, being educated was, uh, not as common either. So, um, that is really important to kind of set the foundation for where I start because it started before me, literally. Um, and so my passion has been built literally for generations and it showed through my grandfather. I never met my great grandfather, um, but I asked my grandfather all the time, you know, what was my great grandfather like? Cause he talked, he talks about his dad all the time and he'd say, well, he's just like me cause that's who I learned from and who I, you know, who his guide and his guide was and his teacher. Um, and so uh, I'm a lot like my grandfather as well. Um, and so anyway, getting to a little fast forward, um, I was like just insanely obsessed with fishing from a really young age and all through elementary school and middle school. And, uh, in middle school, we moved to, well, actually when I was six years old, we moved to Michigan for the first time when my mom, uh, was getting, or my dad was getting his PhD at Michigan, university of Michigan in, in Ann Arbor. And so my grandfather would fly out like every other month to see us and he'd take me fishing, but that was it. Like my parents, <laughs> like they, and, and there's nothing bad necessarily about it, but they weren't really outdoors kind of people. Um, yeah. and so like, it was really hard for me to ever convince either of them to take me fishing, uh, or hunting or much, you know, we go to parks and stuff, but yep. uh, not like the woods, you know, like getting out away from the cement jungle. I think a lot of people um, can relate to that. And that's kind of where Tyler and I started as well. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> so like when my grandfather would come to town, it was like, Woo! Yeah. like I'm going to get <laughs> to go fishing or hunting depending on the season. And um, yeah. So like he'd take me to find lakes around and rivers. Although we did do a lot of river fishing. Um, because I think he was a lot more comfortable in big bodies of water because he grew up on the ocean. And so I think lakes were a lot more comfortable for him. So that's what we did a lot of the time. However, I'm not that way. I love rivers. I love moving water. I like cold, like oxygenated, you know, highly oxygenated water that, you know, pushes against you. Like the first time I stepped into a river, I knew I never wanted to go back to still water. Not that I have anything against it. It's just doesn't literally, I, I, I feel like when I'm standing in the river, the water is literally going into my body and pumping my, the blood of my heart. Like that's how it feels. Um, and so, yeah, so like I got really into bass fishing and warm water species because that was what was more accessible um, in Southeastern Michigan, um, close to Ann Arbor. And then we went back to LA. And that really hurt a lot because LA is even worse than Ann Arbor. <laughs> there ain't nothing around. 
at least that's that is readily accessible to those that um, at least our community did not very, I mean, our Mexican community did not go very far. I, I grew up with a bunch of friends that we lived 30 minutes from the mountains and they never seen snow. Um, to this day, I have friends that are 22 years old, just like me, and still have never seen snow. Um, and so there's like cultural, psychological barriers that still seemingly keep us away from those spaces for whatever reasons those might be. However, um, moving back to Michigan again, when I was in middle school, that all changed. So I was like kind of deprived from that for a little bit, right? You're given kind of the right. carrot yep. in the beginning yep. when you're a little kid and then they take it over and they, well, it, I, sh I shouldn't ex describe it that way. It's our family was doing what we needed to do in order to mobilize, right? Like for sure. my family was taking care of me and our family. So, um, I have no <laughs> hard feelings around that at all. <laughs> It's just the progression of life. So when I went back to middle school in Michigan, like I had access to that again. And oh my gosh, when I got my driver's license, that was for all of us, I think that just changes <laughs> your life, right? Yep. It's liberating. So um, basically, like I was just getting really into the gear side of things. And then it, fly fishing hit when I was about 14. Um, I remember specifically, there was a time uh, we were at Christmas, um, at my grandparents' house and we were sitting right next to the fireplace, uh, right after having deer for dinner, oh, wow. <laughs> as we do for many of our, um, family gatherings. Um, it's my grandfather. I mean, we, we have, we always have wild game around. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so we're there and my grandfather, tells me the same story that he's told me. I like, I swear a million times before, <laughs> but for whatever reason, he left this small detail out. Um, and that's that. So he's hunted in the mountain, the white mountains or the, the Eastern Sierras up by Bridgeport, California for over 40 years at that time. And for mule deer, you know, he told me that all the time, tons of stories, you know, about hunting, but never the fishing component because that wasn't why they were going. But, this time he decided to, because I got really, really into the fishing side rather than the hunting side. He was like, you know what? He's like, I remember that there were these men and he's telling me all this in Spanish, but there's these men standing in the river, whipping rods around. <laughs> and he said, and I'll never forget this component of it. He said, it looks so elegant. I always wished I could do that one day. Okay. Um, and from that moment, I kind of made a promise, uh, but, you know, uh, basically a pact with myself, right. That I would, and it was internal. Like I didn't say it out loud. Like I just reflected on it later. And I was like, you know, I, I want to find out whatever that is. And I want to do that for him. I want right. to pay, pay back, right. What he has taught me. Um, and so I Googled exactly, I sat down right next to him with my computer and I was like, okay, can you describe that again? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I forgot what I put into the search engine, but it was something ridiculous yeah. and fly fishing popped up. And I was like, is this what it looked like? He's like, yeah, that's it. And so I, that's what I started with. And I just started research. What is this? why is this <laughs> how and um none of it made sense in the beginning that's for sure 
Um, and so I did a, it took me several months before I got my first rod, but he had gotten a $50 Cabela's gift card for Christmas. And he's like, here, I'm not going to use it. You should use it. And, uh, so I did, and I found a deal on a Cabela's wind river, uh, combo. It was a nine foot eight weight because we were living in Michigan still. And I knew I wanted to chase steelhead. That's where I'd ever, that's the first time I'd ever seen it was on a steelhead, was on a steelhead trip. Um, and so I was like, well, that must be what you do. That's how you fly fish (laughs) for steelhead. Um, not for trout because the trout rivers in Michigan were kind of like elite. Like you didn't go there to bait fish. You went there to fly fish. So if you didn't know what fly fishing was, you weren't going to those rivers. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what I did. And I learned, uh, as April of 2014, I remind myself every year and I take a moment time. I take weeks to reflect on what I've learned the, in the past year. And, um, it's just crazy how much you learn and grow. And when you think there isn't anything next, it just keeps going. Um, but essentially long story short, <laughs> no, it's a good story. my, it was my inception, um, as a, as a fly angler. Um, yeah, and it just it took off from there. I could continue, but I'll kind of leave it at that. I, I learned. Well, here I'll include this because this was a big part of it, actually, and what what hooked me, right? Because you start fly fishing a lot. Of, a lot of people start fly fishing, oh, yeah. but a lot of people continue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got lucky because th- I had to wait till thaw out. I was, and I t- I tell you, I was out there in the snow before and i was trying and it just it was not going the way i planned it so i gave it a rest left for a few months and in april when the the, when the retention pond in our community thawed out i went down there and started learning how to cast and i was down there for at least three hours every day uh, after track practice when i would come home from from school um and i just cast and cast and cast Within two weeks, I learned to double haul and that changed everything for me because double hauling allowed me to cast further, be more accurate than I would have if I had just stuck with this, the typical, you know, 10, 10 to two, right. Um, overhead cast. Um, and I got lucky because in May, the next month, I had a little time to practice. And then the next month, the white bass run started. And in Michigan, southeastern Michigan, we have one of the largest uh, white bass uh, run migration or spawning migrations in the in the world. Uh, the only the only con, uh, contestant is uh, the in Houston from uh, the Gulf. Um, so I was that's in the Detroit River, but we have another river, the Huron River, that gets a smaller, uh, much less pressure as well. So that that's kind of nice. It's really close to Ann Arbor, so. Uh, I mean, we go down there two hours, 50 fish. Uh, wow. so like that, that's what hooked me. Um, and then we, back then we, there was no such thing as catch and release for us. So it's, you catch it, you eat it. <laughs> so bring home a limit each cause we each had a license and, um, you know, 50 fish fillet them and they're small. So at least the ones in the Huron, the ones in the Detroit river are a bit bigger, but, um, we'd fillet them and make fish tacos to this day. White bass uh, fish tacos are legit. Like I wouldn't buy tilapia at the store if I had a choice. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I remember you telling me that's like one of your favorite fish to eat, right? 
Yeah, white bass and walleye are probably my two uh, other than, and they're different. Like they're not like trout or mm-hmm. salmon. So like as far as white meat fillets, like walleye and white bass, I think are really the best. Catfish is also really good, but you have to find them in colder water, in my opinion, to get them to taste yep. as good as white bass and walleye. But So I guess like a, a progression question there is like, mm-hmm. was there always a time, like when you started fly fishing, was it like, I'm going to do this forever? Or like, was there another pinnacle point where you were like, you know, this is something I do do want to do forever. And it wasn't just like a hobby because I feel like yeah. you've really incorporated it as like a lifestyle. Sure. Um, well, within those two weeks of learning how to cast, I, at the end of it, actually, I was like, wow, like I can actually do something with this thing. Like mm-hmm. not, not fly fishing, but I can do something with this rod. Like I can actually achieve things that I wasn't able to with a spinning rod. Um, and from the, uh, yeah. So at the end of those two weeks, my grandfather, uh, also helped me purchase a fly tying kit for 70 bucks at Cabela's as a Gunnison kit. You probably still find it there. Um, and I remember I came home that afternoon cause it was later in the day and I tied until four in the morning. Wow. Oh my gosh. Um, I watched every one of those tutorials on that CD. Yeah. And so I watched every one of them and I was like, I'm just, I need to master this. And so, and I did into that night, but I tried <laughs> yep. and, uh, the next day was my brother's, one of his, he was playing lacrosse or baseball. One of the two, he had a sports game and I brought my vice with me to the game. <laughs> oh I was gosh. sitting in the, I was sitting in the tailgating chair, like, uh, tying in my lap. I was tying caddis or the way they they called them rock worms in the, in the CD. Um, yeah. So I feel like I kind of allowed it to take me where it wanted to and it progressed, uh, pretty quickly into success, Mm -hmm. which is, I think what led to me following the passion. Um, when I started trout and I, it, it was just so it's, it's almost coincidental. Like everything was right back one thing after next. Cause the next month in June, uh, I was in Lansing getting my saxophone fixed. I played sax and clarinet in high school. Uh, and while they were fixing it, I went down to the red Cedar river and I caught like a, it's like 15 or 18 pound carp. Oh my gosh. That was another like, Oh my <laughs> gosh, this is awesome. Um, and then the next a uh, week after that, we were in California. So we flew out to California, which we, at the time we did every summer to see family. And my grandfather took us up to the Eastern Sierras, uh, where I grew up. That's where I caught my first trout ever. That's where I cut my teeth on trout fishing was in the mountain streams of the Sierras. Um, and, uh, I caught my first wild trout. It was a wild brown trout on the Owens river, um, out there. And, that was another moment of like, this is insane. (laughs) This is awesome. And I, three hours I fished to catch that one fish, Uh, but it was like 14 inches and golden. Like it was like gold. Like it was was gorgeous. Um, yeah. Unlike any, I'd never caught a brown trout before either. So like 
there's just all these things kind of happening in very short sequence yep um that just kept my hype up and the following year i uh was uh admitted to a trout camp through trout unlimited where i met a bunch of other kids my age so i think and that was it that was i think the moment that was like like there's community like prior to that, it was just me and my grand, not, not, you know, I loved it. Right. Me and my grandfather and my cousins and my brother, mm. uh, we, we go fishing together with, you know, buy some worms and you go down to the river, to the lake and you sit there. Right. Hope, yeah. basically hope, hope for something to happen. Uh, at least in fresh water and salt water, my grandpa has different knowledge, but I never had community in that broader, in the broader sense, mm-hmm. other than my family. And so when I found, I think that community of young anglers, fly anglers at that and conservationists, uh, that changed it a lot. That changed everything, no doubt. And the counselors, like the leadership, the uh, elders, the adults took like, they were extremely welcoming. In fact, that first camp I met what I, who I refer to as my fly fishing grandparents, <laughs> Tom and Connie um morris they're they're still in um uh in michigan and i go and visit them kind of explain i guess i've never even asked you what it was a trout camp and like what does it all entail if anybody's like actually interested in something like that because i think like i think if someone like i think if there was more exposure or something like that and maybe there is but like in my community there wasn't right absolutely so um so trout unlimited Hosts usually they're statewide. In larger states, you might have two um, or yeah, two camps uh, by region. But um, in Michigan, we had one, and it was around you. So you'd apply. Um, usually, they're not competitive, so just apply. You're probably going to get in. It's usually based on funding, not on are you do we want you yeah, yeah here? like are you they qualified you to be there? Right, right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And uh, a tip for that process, if you can find a local Trot Unlimited chapter, they should sponsor you. You okay. ask them, um, because if it's a fund, which it almost always is, if it's a, uh, a fund issue, right, of why the, that camp cannot admit you, have them talk to your Trot Unlimited chapter, um, and they should be able to figure something out. Okay. And if not, contact. I have, I've, been involved with Trot Unlimited since throughout a long a while. And in fact, I'm in the process right now of um, uh, seeking a job with them. So oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, with TU National. So, so back to the question about Trot uh, <laughs> yeah. But seriously, if people have uh, external questions, I am very happy to answer any um, to help people get involved. Um, a trout camp, yes. Yeah, so there's usually 25 to 30 kids um, at a trout camp. Um, usually it's going to be anywhere from two, well, some are one day. So you show up in the early in the morning and you go through the process, you know, what is fly fishing, learn a bit of conservation, do some, uh, fly casting to, um, lessons, uh, with volunteers. Usually sometimes they'll have, uh, certified, uh, casting instructors, which is awesome. Um, you know, learn what a trout eat, uh, what flies imitate them. And if there's time, usually you go down to uh, the water and try and catch some fish. Um, and 
usually there's going to be some food. So that's kind of, that's always a plus. Um, so that's on the shorter end. Uh, I would say I was a part of uh, the longer side of, uh, of the TU trout camps, which is five days, Okay. which makes sense because Trout Unlimited, for those that don't know, has started on the banks of the Osavo River in Grayling, Michigan. So Michigan and Trout Unlimited go way back. And TU, uh, to the TU trout camp at, in Michigan is the second oldest in the country. Oh, wow. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania camp has a speed by a, a year or two. Um, so five days and it's just awesome. And three and a half out of those five days you're fishing. Um, and you're just spending time with kids, with other kids your age. 12 to 16 years old. Typically, um, some camps will have uh, older range, 14 to 18 or some younger. Uh, it just depends on the state. But um, yeah, you learn what fly fishing is. You get some amazing instruction. Uh, you get to spend time with other people your age, which is even better. Uh, some great food usually. Um, and um, some uh, ask parents to attend in order for their child to attend. Mm-hmm. Others don't. The Michigan one, they don't. Um, and then bringing it back to your comment around the fact that Iowa did not have something like that. Uh, when I first got here as a freshman in college four years ago, I actually started working on trying to get one started here. Okay. Uh, in the process, I got... Um, life got a, a, a ahead of me and I had to take a pause. However, um, if I take this, uh, if I, I should, uh, continue this path with Tron Unlimited, which I will as a volunteer regardless, but if I'm, um, honored or lucky enough to, to be able to work for them, um, I will, uh, absolutely be working with youth. That would be part of this job. And so, um, I can definitely be a, actually have, a lot more uh, hands-on involvement with uh, getting something like that started in Iowa again. Well, that transitions to like the next thing I was going to talk about is like how good of an educator and teacher you are. And like, just to talk about that, it's like, I remember like, well, I could really see the passion because like when I, when we first met, it was like, I just saw you posting about on Facebook Mm -hmm. and you were like commenting on like everybody's posts, like just trying to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And like, it was like the most nonchalant, like, and you weren't bragging at all or anything like that. It was just like, Hey, you know, I went and caught, you know, this many fish and like everybody was like, like, and then people would ask like, what kind of fly to use? What should I do here? And you were just giving comments back. So like you were first of all, like a really approachable guy. So like when I was able to reach out to you and then like, I kind of start to learn more about you and it's like, this guy is like traveling, you know, two to three hours every weekend to go fishing. It's like, I could just see that real dedication and like every question I brought to you, was never a stupid question or like nothing <laughs> was ever stupid to you. And like, it always came with like a real thoughtful response and probably like more information than I could always handle. But it was like something I always appreciated. So like just setting that stage there and like, cause like what I was going to talk about next is like guiding and like being a good teacher, like kind of go hand in hand in a lot of cases. And I've heard about people having like bad guide experiences. Like when someone is just guiding purely for the money or the check and like, I feel like someone like you, like you're getting a whole different experience when you go through someone like you. Appreciate that a lot. That means a lot. 
And I, I guess I would just like to ask, like, you know, what was kind of the transition from like being a fly angler to like guide to guide life and like kind of like sure. why you did it, how you did it. And any advice you have for someone that's maybe interested in a similar path. Sure. Because I, I guess, I guess before I'll preface that question, like was guiding ever a thought like when you were like, man, I'm fishing all the time. Like, you know, maybe I could be a guide. Was that ever a thought or not necessarily? Yeah, actually, um, coming out of high school, I thought, uh, I didn't think, Oh, I want to do this like as my sole career. And that's all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It's not necessarily what I had in mind, but I did love teaching people. I started one of the first, um, high school, um, fly fishing clubs in the state of Michigan, uh, like started by a student. Um, and so I'd been, and in fact, before that I taught my, so I'm the oldest of what I consider four. So my first cousins, I have two first cousins that I grew up with. We grew up essentially in the same house. My grandmother helped raise us because both of our parents, my cousin, my aunts, my aunt and uncle, and then my parents, they worked real hard to be able to make a living for us. And so my grandmother uh, really, I mean, she raised, she raised us for the early parts of our lives. Um, and so like I taught anything I learned, they learned. And that's also how I was raised. Like my grandfather would not take one of us out if we didn't put in all go. Um, and then I also would try and go by myself because the, I, the kids would pull, you know, drag yeah. me, you know, hold me back a little bit. And so my grandfather wouldn't let me do that either. That if you're going to go, you're going to take your siblings. So um, I, and I eventually grew to appreciate that and honor it. And, uh, means a, it's a big part of my identity today and why I'm a father today and why, um, I, uh, uh yeah, I've chosen to be a, uh, a young father. I really just grown into my identity. So, um, I feel that like I've, so when I first started learning to fly fish, I actually taught them alongside myself. Um, I could barely fly. So the two <laughs> weeks I said it took me to, to learn to cast and stuff. Yep. In that, at the end of that second week, I was starting to teach my brother. <laughs> oh, jeez. So like, it's not like, and I don't, I don't say that it's in like, and it was perfect. And, you <laughs> yeah. know, I knew all the intricacies and I had, you know, a, PhD in fly casting. That's not what I'm sure there were some upset moments in there and some frustration oh, yeah. and everything. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It was more of like I want to teach him because I'm gonna try. Yep. Um, you know, and if uh and so and we were all on the journey together. Like that's how I again how I was raised. You do it together. So if I'm learning how to fly fish, then you know, they're going to want to, and they all wanted to do what I did. So, um, anyway, so I started teaching from, <laughs> from the pretty much the very beginning. Um, and I taught my grandfather and, uh, so in high school, I started teaching students. And then, uh, when I got to college, I started taking students out actually every weekend for free, I would just say, and I would get funding from the college to, as a fly fishing club to, for gas and stuff. Um, and I would borrow my buddy's car. So I didn't have one at the time, my football buddy. And, um, I would say, uh, I would tell students, uh, you know, just be in the car by 6am, by 5am 
or 6 a.m. depending on if I could convince them to go that early <laughs> or not. Uh, and I drive. I drive three and a half hours to get to where we were going. Um, 3.20 to some of the good stuff and then three and a half to some of the better stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and they'd wake up. They'd wake. I'd wake them up right outside of Decorah because that's kind of where it gets real pretty. And so I wouldn't want them to miss it. And they're like, are we in Iowa still? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it changed everything for them. So it was a huge part of it for me as well was helping shape people's identities as Iowans, even if it was for four years. It helped sink people into their land-based identities as, as people living on this land in this present moment. Because when people, when students are coming into Grinnell, all they see is corn and corn and corn and corn. Well, <laughs> it's kind of hard to fall in love with the place a little bit, right? Oh, and right that, yeah. Um, especially, and it's more of, especially if you're coming from, for myself, coming from uh, the Great Lakes, coming from forests, like green everywhere. You can't go two miles without running into a body of water. Like, <laughs> yep. so I out of almost out of survival, like psychological survival, I had to find, I had to find home. Um, and so that's, that was a big driver for me as well. Um, but also then sharing that with other people, I'm like, I know how hard it is for me. I can't imagine what it, what it's like for people and my, or my international friends, right? We have tons, we are, we're now college represents over, over uh, 80 countries. Wow. In, wow. Uh, in a student body of less than 1600. So like, anyway, so I just, um, yeah, I wanted to share that with people, give people a, a, a moment of health and peace and, uh, uh almost the feeling of healing and home. Yeah, and for that. sure. Um, I have friends from Pakistan that go to the, they're, they live in the mountains, right? At the foothills of mountains. And they go up to those rivers, which also have brown trout. And it's like the Caribbean, like the rivers are so clear. It's like the blue rivers. Like they show me pictures and stuff. Really? And I'm like, all right, look, I can't, I can't show you. I can't take you to that. <laughs> but I can take you to some pretty, you know, prettier places than, than Grinnell. Well, like you said, though, a lot of people living around here, I mean, you don't really see the true beauties of Iowa. If sure. like in our area, it's just corn and corn right. and more corn and some soybeans and yeah right. i mean just around here that's all you see yeah totally i mean central iowa is the same way and in fact our river our rivers in central iowa aren't even fishable really like to the extent like that you have to go well first of all there's the the access problem yep. right so you can't even wade in a stream without property access um but the other component is that our rivers are straight sands. They've been channelized so bad to the extent that they're no longer meandering in for miles and miles and miles on end, which means there's hardly any structure and it's all sand. So uh, I'm not saying there's no fish, but it's, and it's also polluted as heck. So like right now there's a ton of algae uh, in the rivers because it's so low and it's mm -hmm. so hot. So from all the nutrient overloading from the agriculture and all that stuff. So that kills everything. It creates a, um, an anoxic environment. No yep. oxygen. So, um, there's that. 
Um, but anyway, so I forgot. So back to the guiding <laughs> part yeah. of it. Yeah, that, sorry. Uh, like, no, it's fine. No, this is great. I try to implement some uh, yeah. other forms of knowledge in there as well. I think it's important uh, context. But I did that for two and a half years every weekend that I possibly could. And I was also a college football player. I played for Grinnell. We didn't, we weren't all that successful, but I still had that, I still had that responsibility. Um, yeah, me, your full-time college student, like studying a science major, like super right. busy with everything else. And, and like, another thing is like, when you say every week and I was like, you were going in the winter too. Oh yeah. And it, oh, was, yeah, like, yeah. it was not always right. like ideal conditions, like oh, yeah. a perfect summer day or anything. Yeah. Did you get anybody to go in the winter time? Mm-hmm. Really? Um, That's I awesome. Got one of my friends, um, Claire, she went with me in negative eight. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and she, she did awesome. She'd never fly fish before, but she's from La Crosse, Wisconsin. And so uh, I was like, you got to learn. Like one way or another <laughs> get out there because you live right in the heart of it. Yep. Uh, and yeah, so she, and she got 10 fish that day. Dang. Oh my uh, gosh. Pretty awesome for a first timer in snow and um and negative eight yeah. yeah that's amazing <laughs> um and obviously you know uh you know we didn't take them out of the water or anything like that it's it's just, just way too cold but you can still catch fish um anything cold i have very different ethical restrictions now um i at the time i was still learning about all kinds of stuff and so like yeah i have definitely higher temperature limits not only for comfort but for safety of the fish okay not worth it to me um their gills freeze within um seconds oh really uh, yeah well, it was especially in negative eight degrees yeah so you uh, you said you didn't you don't take them out of the water when the weather's that cold no not okay uh, if, if it's under 10 degrees, they're definitely not coming out of the water. Okay. Um, it really should be really like 30 degrees, 32 degrees uh, or warmer if you're going to take them out of the water. Okay. Um, it takes a lot longer for their gills to freeze, but there's really no, no need. The prop, so the problem that what people, even if they don't freeze solid, it's, you still bur- it's like burning. It's like getting burnt. Yeah. Right, so you still have damage. So you and that is irre, irreversible damage. Um, you can't. That's not healed. So um, you want to eliminate that to every extent possible. If you're going to catch and release, you're going to keep them. Then it's a different story. Um, but um, but yeah. So I did that with students. I taught well over fifty students, individual students, unique students, all of which all except three had never fly fished before. Wow. And even those three had only done it like once before that. You know, that's awesome. So then when did guiding come in? Yeah. So the, like the professional component of it yep. um, came in. So I guess I call that like yeah. that was the entrance right to guiding people on the fish and teaching. And I was like, well, if I can do that, for free <laughs> right sure i can do it for money and when we found when we uh learned the awesome news that our uh our little little man was coming along um i uh 
started considering a little bit more heavily. I didn't fully go all in, um, mostly because of the time constraints. I'm like, I don't, I don't, it's really hard when you have an obligation, right? When someone pays you, you got to show up to work, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, you can just say, oops, I'm sorry. Uh, I got to take care of the baby today. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that was really holding me back uh, for uh, quite a while. Um, and then um, when the pandemic hit, I lost all of my jobs, all three jobs um, at the college. Wow. They shut everything down. And the only jobs that were available were essential jobs, you know, groceries, high risk, essential jobs. My son had just spent seven days in the hospital with two, three respiratory viruses fighting for his life. He was only three months old. Um, and he was still very weak. His lung capacity was still low and, and recovering. And so there was just, there was no way I was going to take that risk. Um, and so um, I, decided to start guiding at that time i was like you know if i can be outside i don't have to worry about the droplet saturation stuff and i can easily you know distance six feet and all that stuff and i'd still wear a mask outside just to be extra cautious i mean yeah if any fee got sick even with the cold he would have been in real deep trouble um as um and so that 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 was really what, what pushed me over the edge in that way um, to start guiding was out of necessity, essentially. But also, I had a passion for it for a long time. I've been <laughs> yeah. doing it for years. For sure. Right? Um, so if you can, you know, and I got, a, I got backlash from some lot of people because I started posting some bigger fish, but I had to market. I, I had to feed my family. I had to pay the bill. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I need to put some, I need to put some, uh, some trophies up essentially to get people's attention at least and then throttle back and um i i ran 20 trips in 2020 um through july i started in may again when kind of things started opening back up a little bit um that's when i started guiding um and i and then i also tied flies during the week so um, i started tying commercially as well uh, to fill in the gaps when i especially in the beginning it was really not hard necessarily but certainly not a full schedule by any means for guiding um but by end of august and to september i ran most of my trips then i ran six 16 trips oh my gosh 12 to 16 trips between the first of september and the middle of august um and i was running doubles um, like double, like Saturday, Sunday, um, some half day, half day, some full day for one day. Um, before that, we had the the show that hit, so I had to, four clients canceled on me. <laughs> uh, which so I get it, I yeah. understand. Yeah. I get it. I'm like I, we all got screwed in different ways, but <laughs> yeah. uh, things happen. So, um, and I didn't get a, some of those clients didn't come back. Uh, which is fine. I understand. Um, but yeah, so it was really out of necessity, but also the passion had already been brewing for quite a while. So I've never taken a guided trip whatsoever. So what, what should I expect um, coming on a guided trip? Like, are you supposed to bring your own fly rod or, you sure. know, bring your own flies just for somebody who doesn't know? 
Sure. Um, so ironically, I actually don't know many guides in a real personal way where I necessarily felt comfortable, like asking them, Hey, like, what do you do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Trip, you know? So like I said, I, I, when I growing up, it was just my grandfather and my family. When I started fly fishing, I, it was only other kids that I knew, not other uh, adult like guides and stuff. Anyway. So I kind of, I went based off of my great grandfather's template. <laughs> Everything my grandfather <laughs> would tell me that he would do is what I ended up doing and what I could piece together of what was intuitive, yeah. right? What another guide might do. So when you're coming, uh, I'm, I'm a super open person, like just generally. Yeah. So I, you know, now if you come to me and you say, well, I want to target big fish, you're using my stuff because I have gear that <laughs> I have tailored to my program. Um, and okay. we need every bit of it to function to its maximum capacity. But if you're just starting out and, you know, and you want to bring your own rod, which is actually a phenomenal idea because that's the rod you're going to be using. It's like getting to know your own gun, yeah, right? yeah. When you're shooting, um, getting to know your own, your bow. Um, it's, uh, and when, once you start learning to fly cast, you can cast any rod, but when you're, you know, when you're going to have your own stuff, you might as well learn on your own stuff. So, um, I'm super open to that. Other guides are not. Okay. Uh, um, I shouldn't say some other guides may not be. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, like I'm so, oh, and I provide all the flies. Okay. Most guides do. Okay. However, there's some that may charge. Um, I mean, I suppose there's such a wide variety of flies that, you know, you know, like, Hey, this is going to work where I would, I would have no idea coming into it. Yeah. And I also design. So like I design flies for my program, for the streams that I am guiding on for the region. Like, um, I am, I like to think I'm, I, I like to be as innovative as possible. And so, um, I like to, Fill the voids. Yes. Like where what's missing. Um, and so yeah, I like uh for example, I have my definitely my top producing patterns, the Mac Caddis. It's a custom pattern I designed for the Iowa Driftless. However, it's worked all across the country for different clients, customers. Just got a text this week from a customer that's out in uh and he was a client of mine out in Montana. Oh fishing on spring creeks in montana and he's like this is all these are awesome that's incredible yeah so um shoot we've had over 1500 fish caught on that one fly this year Jeez. oh my gosh wow um, we had in 12 trips we had over 700 fish landed on that one fly alone oh my gosh less than 30 of those over 700 were rainbows so majority wild browns so anyway supply my own flies but usually it's for a reason um because and that's for me more so actually i mean i want to know confidence i want to have confidence in what you're doing because if i'm like man is it their casting is it their drift or is it their <laughs> flies or, if there's too many unknown variables i can't narrow it down uh-huh so if i can have as many things consistent as possible the better it's going to be the, the easier it'll be for me to find the, the formula for the day. Yes. Yeah. You know, to solve it. So um, the more things I have control over, the better. No, I feel like, yeah, like definitely booking a guided trip anywhere is super beneficial, especially when you find someone along the lines of like Marco, who is able to like bridge those gaps. Cause I mean, like really at the end of the day, like if, 
if you were to take somebody who just like started at like let's say they're starting at seven in the morning with you fishing mm-hmm. they haven't fished they're like you know they don't have a great cast they don't really understand how to read water or catch fish i mean by the end of the day you've basically just turned that person around and that's yeah. like a whole new angler from like what i've learned from people that have told me that they tell you the stories from you or people i've heard from it's like that's what they kind of explain is and like just you know, paying that money is a really good experience and probably the best money you can spend. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, uh, and I've taken, like, I had a client that's fished in Iowa for fly fish for 50 years, gone all over the country, fly fished internationally. Um, and, uh, I mean, he's a pretty good angler, but not, you know, I shouldn't say, and he's getting in, you know, and he's fly fished for a long time, but didn't necessarily dedicate to specializing and finding those gaps uh, and merging them in Iowa. And so he came out with me and I mean, we had, he had the, what he said was, it was the best day of fly fishing he's ever, he's <laughs> yeah. ever had. Um, and it wasn't by numbers, but just the experience itself. Like we caught over 30 fish in a matter of, le- it was a half day. So it was less, it was four hours as a half day. Um, but we only fished for, three and a half because really three probably because it was hike in hike out you know all that stuff and um and we had two 18 inches landed and a 21 Um, in addition to the rest of those fish were not i think one was 12 inches and the rest were average of 14 several 16s in there (laughs) it's just really cool because you know ethan when he first, you know, we were kind of just getting into fly fishing. We really didn't know what we were doing. And then Ethan was on the fly. What's that Facebook page called? Iowa fly guys. Iowa fly guys. And he's just like, yeah, I met this guy named Marco and I went fishing with him. And this is what he showed me. And then uh-huh. he was showing me on the stream. And all of a sudden we started catching way more fish than we usually do. You know, it used to be only like one or two fish a day, maybe. Yeah. Cause I mean, we were just stripping like woolly buggers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I mean, stuff that, I mean, it works, but it just definitely like isn't practical in like every scenario. Right. And like, just from like being with you for like a day, it was just like completely changed my mind on fly fishing. Yeah. yeah. It changed, it changed mine. I mean, I've never fished with you, Marco, but what Ethan <laughs> showed me that you showed him, I mean, it changed my mind about fly fishing as well. Yeah. That's like something else we can talk about too, is just like having someone that's like a mentor, like when you're learning, it's like every time I fish with you, Marco, it's like, I learned something completely new. I probably break the number of fish I catch, like the record I have. And like, I probably catch my biggest fisher, hook my biggest fish as well. So, I mean, like having a mentor like that is just awesome. And someone like I can bounce ideas off of and just like, you know, feel free to ask anything, which I feel like, you know, it's something we haven't gotten into yet, but I feel like is honestly like one of the best services you provide. And I'm not for sure if anybody else provides it, but like you're free and not free. You have to pay for it. But, but yeah, yeah, like that's probably one of the coolest services because like I feel like being able to like bring a bunch of questions forward to you and just have you answer them like in a very thoughtful manner, close the gap between like you becoming a good angler and a great angler. Sure. And yeah. I try and offer like a really um, like diverse spread of, of services essentially, right? To cover the bases for many different people are in many different financial situations, which, you know, but, but I don't, I don't believe that that is, should be a barrier for 
because because for me, let me define this for myself. I see fly fishing as a gateway to the to one of the gateways to forming a relationship with the land, mm-hmm. and that yep. is extremely important to me, to my culture, um, and to uh, to being human, uh, to living a healthy life. Um, I believe that having access to the land is a hum- basic human right. Um, and so in that same way, I try to reflect that in what I do. Um, and so my services, I try to create uh, an array of accessible um, uh, options. So one of which is that co- con- consultation service that um, Ethan uh, talk- mentioned, um, which I offer. For $25 for 30 minutes. Um, and it, we have one fly shop in Iowa. Yep. <laughs> one real, like, called a fly shop. Yeah. And it's in Des Moines. Yep. In Des Moines. Um, I never even knew yep. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. By the way, uh, plug, you guys should go, uh, anyone that's in Iowa or visiting Iowa, uh, go hit Kevin up. Um, He's good folks, Kevin and Laura, Rod and Ribbit in Des Moines. Um, but it's like, I mean, they're three and a half hours from the, from the Driftless, right? Mm-hmm. So anyone up there is going to usually go up to Minnesota to go to a fly shop or over to Wisconsin to go to a fly shop. And it's still, we're, you're talking at least an hour drive. Yep. Right? So if you can save that gas and time and excuse me. And the, what uh, most people uh, tend to feel really um, just don't know where to start. Right. Yep. Like, uh, I don't know how to ask this question, but like, I don't want it to be a dumb question. And, you know, I don't want to take your time. And the other thing is that most fly shops, if they're good fly shops, they're usually real busy. And so they're usually not going to have a whole lot of time to, you know, just, spend an hour with you or something, right? Just teaching you, Yep. which some fly shops will some fly shop. I'm not, uh, I'm not saying don't go to a fly shop. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Um, however, I'm just trying the, the knowledge gap I'm trying to address. Right. Um, I can't, I'm not going to sell you tip it through this consultation service, yeah. right. Or a rod, um, or local knowledge, right? Like uh, that's where fly shops are for. They, they know the area, they know what flies are working. They know all that kind of stuff, but technique, technical wise, right? Technique casting, you know, okay. How did you approach this day? Oh, the, you know, we had an overcast versus a high sunny day and you did this. Okay. Let's try this different next time. Um, and then you usually it will, it will, basically puts you at the next level, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. This went better. It wasn't perfect, but it went better. Um, and so then you keep growing that way. Uh, and it's a lot cheaper than hiring a guide, uh, for, you know, 400 and, you know, for 200, anywhere from 200 to $500, you know, if you want a half day or a full day. Yeah. Talking about, you know, just even the distance to a fly shop. Yeah. Like that's a hurdle to jump over, but just like, it is also like an intimidating experience because sure. you don't know who you're going to meet in the fly shop. You don't know how the interaction is going to go. So that is something intimidating that like, I think being able to speak to someone like you who is like very open and friendly and like, you kind of know what you're getting with them is definitely an awesome opportunity. 
it's just the first step. Like I said, I'm not trying to steer people away from yep. investing in these other forms of business. I think the community needs, you know, I know that, right. We as a fly fishing community need the support of everyone. Yes. Um, and so I'm more as offering a first step, right. Yeah. Um, getting a little bit of knowledge so that you sound, you know, you have some vocabulary, some lingo to, you know, uh, you know, when you're having that conversation with the fly shop owner. And speaking of not many fly shops in Iowa, I was really surprised when, where were we, were we at? Yellow. The Yellow River Forest. Yeah, yeah. Yellow River Forest. I was really surprised, you know, I thought, you know, we were going to go up there and maybe hit up a fly shop, whether it be 30 minutes or 45 minutes away and, you know, ask them what's working, what's going on. But yeah, there's nothing around. And that really surprises me for how many people were fishing there. Sure. Yeah. And unfortunately, I feel that the regulations of Iowa are not sustainable right now okay and so i actually i feel that putting a fly shop in the middle of that region could be disastrous in this point in time okay Until there is change for more sustainable meaning protecting wild fish right yep. maybe more public access um right actually uh do you pull in a t- we don't we don't so I know the Iowa drift list looks huge on a map, but our laws are very different than Minnesota and Wisconsin. You can't just jump off of any bridge. And as long as your feet are wet, you're legally allowed to wait. That's, that's, that's the case in Wisconsin and Minnesota. That's not the case in Iowa. So even though we might have, you know, thousand, you know, 1500 to 2000 miles of trout stream, who knows, maybe more. Um, we only have access to, 143.7 miles of trout stream. Yeah. Right. Of which, um, for example, the Yellow River is only in the last three years, three to four years, has, uh, so it's three years. In the past three years, it's bec- has open uh, waiting access. Prior to that, when I first got here, it was 25 miles of you can only float it. Yep. So unless you had a boat too bad or you had to ask for permission which is also extremely you know daunting and intimidating. <laughs> yes. yep um so anyway um like i just want to put that into perspective like yep. in the sense that you know wisconsin has 13 over thirteen thousand miles of trout streams like yep. very we're talking about a very different scale and yet they still only have two major fly shops one in Viroqua and Lund's fly shop up in up north in River Falls, I think, up by the Kinney. And now that you say that, it all makes sense, I guess. I didn't realize that sure. we had that low of miles of available stream right. to fish. Right. And it's just just to be aware and cautious, right? I'm not saying that no one should open a fly shop. I'm obviously yeah. tell somebody what to do. But as a community, I think it's very important to be aware of context right yep and i get that and i feel that actually kind of minnesota and wisconsin's shops have pulling people there has actually kept almost been like a little shield in in for iowa so like not a lot of people come here um and i think it's i think that's sustainable actually i think that's what's allowed iowa to stay what it is rather than 
plummeting um, uh, because we've seen, I mean, we're seeing on some of the more famous streams um, up to 20 cars, literally 12 to 20 cars. I counted, I'm not joking, like um, from uh, in per parking lot, like Jeez. it's just been outrageous. That's insane. Uh, yeah. Uh, this March, we had the most licenses sold, I think, ever. Uh, and it goes up every year. I mean, every state is increasing. We know that, you know, the Iowa, uh, the trout stamp um, sales went up by 20 or something so something to talk about there is like when you talk about a fly shop i mean this is probably something that you battle with personally mm-hmm. and internally but like how does a guide incorporate into that as well right. a guide has to have a somewhat of a negative impact on the sustainability right sure so it i think it it depends on your relationship the type of your relationship with the with the resource with that environment so that's i appreciate you bringing that up because I take this very seriously um, for myself. Um, And I actually, and the way I counter that is I invest deeply in conservation. I'm on the TU board for the largest TU chapter in Iowa um, for education. So I tried all this that we're talking about. I have uh, put on public platforms so that other people have been also are gaining knowledge, right? So if you're, we're able to educate, the more people that are educated and are able to make informed decisions, right? The better off we're going to be. That's the stewardship, right? Um, Stewardship on a, on a personal level is a lot stronger than the, than the institution of natural resources management as a whole. We are the managers. Mm -hmm. We are the stewards, right? If we choose to go against what the natural resource managers right? Uh, say, then it doesn't matter what they do. We're going to screw it up anyway. Mm-hmm. So it starts and ends with us, the public, which is also why I believe in education so strongly. And so that's why I also, you know, stepped into the role as a education chair for TU, but also more directly educating just on Facebook on, on, a, <laughs> on a widely used public platform. I mean, uh, the largest fly fishing group in Iowa has almost 3000 members. Um, and like I, you know, so that's where I share my knowledge. I don't do it privately on, I have a blog, but I, if I post something in my blog, it's also going on that site on that, on that page because, and if and it's, it has nothing to do with like, pride or like i know more than you i literally just if it can help one person it's one person that is able to one more person that's able to make an informed decision yeah and i'm not i'm not trying to like call anybody out or say anything but like the way i think about it is like all the times that you look up anything or do any research for trout fishing most of the time people are like tailing those searches or that research to something where they're going to catch more fish and it isn't always to the conservation and right. I don't think it's like definitely like directed. I think it's more like a by product of it. Sure. And like, I feel like you bringing it to some of those public places to talk about it. And like, just like being in a place where I might be scrolling through Facebook. I'm like, Oh, Marco said this and I read it and I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Like I didn't even know that, mm-hmm. but it's something that's like hard for me to gather just looking it up online. And I think sure. having some of those places that you are putting it, cause I mean like, and this is kind of why I wanted to start this platform was like, 
being able to educate people in a way that like you aren't going to see other places or you aren't going to sought after. Absolutely. Synthesizing, right? So like pulling a bunch of these small bits of information, which are commonly found on the internet and actually putting them into the bigger picture, right? Applying them. Um, and yeah, I totally agree. I feel that I also do that institutionally through my business. Yep. So for example, I only sell barbless flies. All of my flies are barbless. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give people a, a choice whether they're going to crimp them barb. Which is fine. If you don't want to buy a barbless fly, then don't buy it from me. That's fine. Um, I'm just, it's, uh, and I'm the, the other component is that you hardly won't find barbless flies in a fly shop. Yep. They're mm-hmm. all barbed, every single one of them. Mm-hmm. And so if we're uh, allowing uh, institutionally, right, across the boards or systemically, I guess you could say, right, because it's yep. pervasive throughout the entire culture of the, of the industry to, for people to fish uh, in a luxurious way, not for right, fly fishing in the cultural sense in the context of the U S is a luxury sport. It is yeah. not necessarily for food. Um, and so if you're doing that and tearing up fish's face with a barb, yeah. it doesn't really go well together. Right. And there's a sustainability component, right? So, um, I don't, I'm, and I'm also, and I have the privilege of, and I recognize that to live, to guide in the driftless that was in streams that are very well populated, right? High abundance. Yep. So we get a lot, of, we get a lot of chances. And so that makes my choice even easier. Uh, yeah, I'm, my client loses their first five fish. Well, they lost their first five fish, but they hooked them. So now it's my job and I am going to compensate. And I get, I speak from my own experience and my own choices, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that other people should have to do this or anything like that. I'm just talking about myself, but I put that, I put that onus, that, that, um, responsibility on myself, right. Um, to overcome with skill and with knowledge, right. I, it is on my skill as a guide to teach you how to catch fish on barbless hooks. Yeah. Um, and I have had zero people, zero of my customers that have bought my flies. Literally no one has said, Oh my gosh, I wish these were barbed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've caught less fish because these are barbless. Yeah. I mean, it just makes the process a lot easier. I mean, a lot of times I get the fish in the net. It's like the fish is already off. Exactly. Easy release. Everything goes yep. smooth. Never it's not happened. like I was sitting there just like, you know, manhandling the fish to get the hook out. Yep. And, you know, I think that's an important thing to consider. It's like, I feel like with conservation, it's like a long, drawn out, drawn out war. And basically you're just trying to take these little battles that you sure. can win. And right. like, that's an example, like your barbless hook, like, you know, just taking that step and making it only for barbless to help increase, you know, the catch and release ratio they survive and yep. i feel like that's just something that like we as people need to do and do more often so i'm happy yeah, that someone out like there is like you are doing it and like being very educational with it as well Yep. i feel that like not only i feel i know that finding barbless hooks on like commercially they're actually really expensive mm-hmm. uh and it's because of the commodity 
has nothing to do with the price of the hook being more expensive. Okay. Yes, on average, a machined barbless hook, right, that comes in the package as barbless, designed as barbless, is a, is more expensive on average than you would find. You could find super cheap barbed, barbed hooks, yeah. but they're also going to break and bend out on you. So that also ain't good either. So if you're going to buy a barbed hook, you might, like you got to put quality hooks on there. So um, essentially, that's the other component is I sell my flies pretty cheap in comparison to most other. And if not, I match the barbed hook market at the very least. And if I can uh, produce them at a rate that um, is more accessible, I will lower that price. For example, most of my tungsten flies, which are also are barbless and tungsten. So I try to eliminate the lead. That's another part mm, of the conservation yep. model that I use. I eliminate all lead from my, from from my rigs, um, yeah. um, split shot, uh, lead under bodies, all that, that stuff. So tungsten is way more expensive. That's broadly known. However, you go to Orvis, they charge three dollars, and I get that. You got to pay the tire, and then you got to mark up because you're the business selling it. So that's the other component of going direct to buyers, uh, right? To tires. I should sorry. <laughs> to buy to tires right yeah. that high commercial tires is that you're not paying that second markup um so yeah i sell mine for 225 um which is uh 75 cents cheaper than the average of most others um so i and again again that's all about like i care about people buy i want people to buy them yes because it helps my business but more so because it gets more barbless hooks and lead uh, more barbless hooks on the water than rather than barbed hooks and less lead on the water essentially mm-hmm, yep. in the water and that, that can be like a subconscious thing it's like hey marco like you know i'm looking at tying flies like you know how do i start tying and you're mm-hmm. like instead of recommending them using lead you're just like we'll use tungsten and a barbless hook and like they won't even think about it i, I think saw- that's I think that's something that like our generation has to be better about too. I mean, when I asked you, Ethan, like, Hey, what should I get? Or what materials should I get? I mean, you suggested it and I really don't, I don't see any benefits from having a barbed hook over a barbless, you know, I mean, they work great and they're way better for conservation. And And I think it's something that like, you know, every state should even consider all around. Like I think the, the province of like Manitoba is completely barbless and that's for all species, you know, and, I mean, we, when I was up there fishing once, like we caught a fair share of everything in it and we didn't need any help from a barb. So, yeah. So, I mean, like someone that's just like completely new to the sport and, you know, what way would you recommend to them, sure. you know, in any way to help cut that learning curve down of like being a proficient angler? So obviously, so I'm going to say as far as, so you got to have some foundation of something. Um, so that means going to the internet, right? There's a, today when I, and people are going to laugh because I didn't start that long ago, 2014. And this is relative to other people in the fly fishing world is not that long ago, yep. seven years, seven and a half years. So, but when even that long, even at that point, seven and a half years ago, which relatively isn't that long ago, but in the modern context, like I'm talking two thousands, of fly fishing worlds, it's eons ago. Every year we're getting new 
products now. Every year, thing that social and and I think social media changed that, uh, impacted that a lot as well, right? Social media marketing and all these different things. So like, there is a ton of information on the internet now. I learned on the internet, um, and there's a lot of things that I learned on the water by myself that are now also on the internet. Um, <laughs> that which is great i mean there you can you can literally become like well i mean between the internet and my mentors and my great fly shops i grew up with schultzy schultz outfitters and Corey in the shop there just awesome awesome mentor uh when i was a kid like they would just they would always answer all my questions like you said right they had no dumb questions mm-hmm. but he also would make me think. So he'd be like, you know, be like, you, you should just go do it. Just get on the water. Right. Just, just here, take this fly, take this rod, go down there, figure it out. Come back, <laughs> come back in an hour. That's <laughs> almost, that's almost some of the best guidance, you know? Right. Absolutely. You, if everybody, I mean, if you just gave me all the answers. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I know this is kind of like almost counterproductive to answering that question, but having a good mentor and teacher is, is a phenomenal way to cut down your learning curve. (laughs) But if you're on your own, um, it is time on the water is irreplaceable. It really is. However, going back to the first thing I said about the internet and research, research is also invaluable. Merging the two research and practicum, right? Practicum is putting that into practice. Mm-hmm. You have to have both in order to be the best that you can be. And so for myself, I grew up uh, having only a few moments in time growing up when my grandfather was around to take me fishing. So I did a lot of research, yeah. a lot, a lot, a lot prior. And a lot, a lot, a lot when I first started fly fishing too, because he would leave and then he'd come back. And again, that's why I said when I got my driver's license, I changed everything because I didn't need him to be around anymore all the time. So, um, and even like literally I'd go and I'd fish for 20 minutes, 30 minutes and I'd leave because that's all the time I would have, but I would always try and I'd tie a new fly, like, you know, then I take it down there. Oh my gosh, it caught three fish in 20 minutes. Okay. This is a good sign. All right. Well, uh, could I have done it better? Oh, that one I lost, like I, I lost eight though. I landed yeah. <laughs> three, but I lost eight. Um, the, maybe I need to change something. Right. So even in 20 minutes, you can get that information is, is crucial. That puts you on the next level in 20 minutes. If I were to recommend one thing for people to cut down their learning curve in terms of time yep. is 15 minutes can change everything, right? Just spend 15, if you got a river, a pond on your way back from work, on your big way back from school, close to you, most, a lot of high schools have a retention pond on their property. I guarantee you there's some bass or bluegill in there. Yep. Even if there aren't fish, if you're into fly time, take your flies down there and test them. I do that all the time in high school. Shoot, I, was, I would tie flies in homeroom. That's awesome. I would have my vice in my backpack, uh, or I'd go down and I'd leave my vice in my band locker or my football locker, and I go down, grab it at lunch, 
the cafeteria was close to the athletic wing and I'd bring it back for homeroom and I'd take it to the rest of my classes for the rest of the day. And I'd tie, I'd tie myself. I'd tie four woolly boogers in 10 minutes. Transition from that beginner question. Uh-huh. I know you do a lot of year on thing. Is that practical? Like if you were going to take a beginner out fishing or if you're going to recommend for someone to, you know, next step with fly fishing is your mm-hmm. nymph thing what you would recommend i think it depends on who you're right where you're at right yeah. so where you're at so what species you're going to be targeting yeah. and who you're teaching if it's someone who's going to have a lot of time on the water then maybe not because it's actually very difficult i shouldn't say very difficult it's psychologically challenging yeah to overcome the barrier of going from your own nymphing back to use it, trying to use learning to use a fly line. Yeah. Because the casting styles are different, but each have their own utilities and uh, strengths. Um, your own nymphing can't do everything. can yeah. do a heck of a lot, but it can't do everything. Um, and so I would, if it's someone who is looking to be invested in, and then I would actually start with fly line. Okay. I would, I would just, I would take that, just grind, take that grind. It will make you a better angler. It will make you a better well-rounded angler because by the time you pick up that Euro rod, you're going to have these other foundational concepts down and you're just going to, it'll, it'll turn you into a machine (laughs) with a Euro rod. Right. But if you don't, yeah, anyway. Um, And then, but however, if you have someone that's, you're looking to get interested Someone that's not yet interested, yep. yes, take them trout fishing with a Euro rod. And as long as you're proficient enough, you feel proficient enough to be able to teach it. Because mm-hmm. if not, it can be very um, frustrating yep. because you don't have an indicator keeping you off of the bottom. So if they do not understand, if you're not able to explain the concept well enough to the right to tell them, like, you got to keep your hand steady, right? Mm-hmm. And all these things, right? You're going to lose a ton of flies. They're not going to have fun uh, and it's just going to be a mess. So yeah. in that sense, this is where the guiding component, right? You have to kind of put yourself in that space a little bit, right? If you have someone um, and if, if you see that happening immediately, switch them over to a fly rod, put an indicator on there, yeah. um, you know, set it shallow and, you know, start moving your increments, go down two inches. Okay. Still not hidden bottom, go down two inches. Just, just go through that process, making it, the least frustrating as possible and the most fun as possible is by far the most important part of that experience. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Is that how you approach a hole is when you approach a hole, like you said, you know, you kind of move it down in increments. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of, you know, you feel it out a little bit. And then once you got yeah, that pretty much with an indicator, um, start shallow. So usually I'm fishing, uh, in the driftless in our streams, I'll fish, a. I'm fishing a medium to small stream. I'm fishing a seven and a half foot four X leader. Okay. Uh, and then I'm putting a tippet ring at the end of it, a one millimeter tippet ring so that I don't have to cut back on my leader every time I add tippet. Um, and then I'm putting about 18, 12 to 18 inches, depending on the depth of the stream. If it's a sh- shallower, meaning it averages one to two to two and a half, maybe let's say a deep spot is three feet. Yep. Right. I'm going with 12 inches. Okay. Because, uh, uh, 
yeah, that's where that's where the majority of my fishing is going to be is about twelve inches. Okay, uh, it's going to average from two to four feet, you know, or and then some really deep holes, and yep. mine might go at eighteen inches. <laughs> anyway, okay. so I'll start with the indicator right at that tippet ring. So I'll start at twelve inches, start at eighteen inches, right, whichever one you're going with. Yep, and then um, move up in increments of three inches. That if I'm fishing a, a spot where I cannot see the bottom, then I might make a six inch adjustment right from the beginning. Okay. I'll make a, I'll make a shallow drift. And if I didn't touch bot, just to make sure, because your eyes can deceive you. Yep. Um, it, Cause it could be moss. Sometimes you can't see the bottom, but it's actually a bunch of vegetation yeah. <laughs> and it's like two inches deep um, of water. Um, make that drift. And then on the second drift, move it up six inches and, then go up by three inches is usually what I do. 